Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Praise you, Lord. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of this day, a day where hopefully some of us have been able to rest and to spend time doing those things and spending time with those people who we love. And we ask, Lord, that you... Um, you guide us and open our hearts to receive your word, your spirit, in whatever way you have in store for us tonight. Remove from us any anxieties, worries, doubts, fears, anything distracting us or taking our focus away from this time, and allow us to be receptive to how you are speaking to us through one another and through sacred scripture. We lay this time at your feet, Lord. You knew each one of us would be here. You see our hearts, you see our lives, you know us better than we know ourselves, and you love us. So help us to receive the words of love and comfort, the words of challenge and direction, the words of fulfillment that we are looking for. Bless this time we laid at your feet. It is yours. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. We are in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. This is the gospel passage for this upcoming Sunday, which is the second Sunday of Lent. And if you didn't know this, every second Sunday of Lent, we read the story. From whatever gospel account we are in, we read the story of the Transfiguration. Every second Sunday of Lent. So we're back. Now this cycle we are in the gospel of Mark. So we're reading Mark's account of the Transfiguration of Jesus. So we've been in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark so far this liturgical year. So we've just seen the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's been baptized. He was tempted in the desert. He started doing these healings and miracles of lepers and casting out demons. Now we jump ahead. So what happened all in the middle there? Uh, the Gospel of Mark is divided into three sections. And the first section is all of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. The middle section, which begins right around halfway through verse, or chapter 8, uh, in some Bibles, it says the mystery begins to be revealed. Uh, halfway through chapter 8, and then chapter 9 and chapter 10 is on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then chapter 11 onward is Jesus in Jerusalem for the final week of his life and then his resurrection. So that's how Mark is divided. So we're in that central section of Mark where he is on the way from Galilee on the, uh, yeah, from Galilee on the way to Jerusalem. First, he goes very far north, and we have the interaction with, the, uh, with Peter and the disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. So they go 25 miles north, and then they start to make their way back down. And somewhere on the way, they have, uh, at least Jesus and three disciples, uh, have this experience of the transfiguration, which we are going to read tonight. So that's where we are in the gospel, and they are on their way to Jerusalem. So we're going to read this twice through, 
First time through, just get an idea of what is being said here. You've probably heard this passage many times, at least once a year, every year, um, but many more times than that. It shows up in the lectionary. So act as though you've never heard this before. You have a fresh canvas in your mind. You've never heard this story. What time of day is it? What does everyone look like? What are the colors, the sounds, the smells, the things in the air, like the, the environment around you? Just paint that picture as if, as if it can be brand new for you as we read this the first time. Okay, So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2, the transfiguration of Jesus. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say. They were so terrified. Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them not to relate what they had seen to anyone except when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this one final time, and as we do, I invite you to pay attention to any Word or detail that strikes you or stands out to you for any reason. You have this image in your mind now. Maybe things are already resonating. I want you to listen very intently and closely to the words and allow them to speak to you personally and specifically. You do not need to interpret the passage, what it means theologically, or try and get a deeper meaning about what's being said here about Jesus. Uh, you're really listening the second time. What is resonating with you personally? What relates to you, sparks a thought, a memory, whatever it is. Underline those things, highlight them, make note of them. How is the Lord speaking to you through this passage? Final time through Mark 9, verses 2 through 10. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say. They were so terrified. Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them not to relate what they had seen to anyone, except when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to look back over the passage and the things that stood out to you. For those of you watching or listening, please let us know in the comments what stood out to you. But for those of us here, after you're done reflecting, take about the next 10 or 15 minutes with those at your tables to share what stood out to you and why. You're welcome to join a table if you'd like to, or combine to make bigger tables. Um, what stood out to you and why? What questions do you have about this passage? And then we'll bring it back to the larger group and do some teaching and some Q&A. So take about the next 10 to 15 minutes. So there's a lot in this passage, a lot of symbolism in this passage. This is one of those kind of, I don't know, golden passages for Jewish symbolism that there is so much um, I don't know, rich meaning in just a few verses. Uh, and so if you were hearing about an eyewitness testimony of this, if you're reading this as someone who knew the Jewish history, the Jewish scriptures, what would you immediately have thought of? And obviously Moses and Elijah are already mentioned, but had they not been mentioned, you would have thought of them already because both of them go up to a mountain to encounter God in some very powerful way, right? Uh, Moses in particular is very much paralleled here in this um, story of Jesus and Peter, James, and John. Uh, very, very like to the detail in some ways. So when Moses comes to Mount Sinai after he brings the Hebrew people out of Egypt, the presence of God in a cloud, a fiery cloud of trumpets and lightning and fire, descends upon Mount Sinai for six days. And you notice at the beginning of this it says after six days. So that means on the seventh day. And on the seventh day, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to converse with God. And he takes with him, not all the way, but he takes with him uh, to part of that interaction, uh, three people. He takes Aaron, his brother, and Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu. Who does Jesus take? He takes the eldest of the apostles in terms of their role, Peter, and two brothers, James and John. Um, so there's already very clear, distinct similarities here. Um, they have an experience of seeing God's glory manifest on this mountain in some way. God speaks God speaks to Jesus, or speaks to the people there, and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Uh, it says in Exodus that the Lord called out to Moses from the cloud to have him come up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. Okay? Um, the people respond in fear. The people are very afraid of what Moses is capable of. Um, the disciples says they were so terrified. Peter has no idea what to do. He's just like babbling like an idiot. Like, let's go camping. What's happening? You know, like, this is great. Let's never leave. It just sounds very, very human in this. I like it. Um, I feel like I would have acted similarly um, if I had kept my composure at all. And then uh, another interesting thing that happens uh, that's not mentioned here because we didn't keep reading, but when they come down from the mountain, there's this interaction after what we just read where um, some of Jesus' disciples are trying to heal a boy, and they're unable to do it because of their lack of faith. Okay, he says some, uh, some demons can only be driven out through prayer. Okay, maybe you remember this story. This happens right after this. What happens, so we have kind of faithless disciples being put on display. What happens when Moses comes down the mountain? What does he find? Everybody worshiping a golden calf. Faithless disciples. Okay, so you see the very distinct similarities that are happening here. When Moses goes up to Sinai, it's to receive the law, the way in which God wants to instruct us how to behave, how to be set apart as his chosen people. 
And he himself said, Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he said, a prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up for you from among your own kindred. That is the one to whom you shall listen. Anyone remember who is the, uh, or the, the person who follows Moses? Who is the leader after Moses? Joshua. What is the Hebrew name for Joshua? Yeshua. What is the Hebrew name for Jesus? Yeshua. Okay? Very, very clear, setting up the fact that not only is Moses prophesying about the immediate future, he's prophesying about what will happen. And then you have Elijah compared to that. It was very much believed that Elijah would appear and come to usher in the Messianic age. That was a very prominently believed prophecy at this time. So when you see these two figures who represent the totality of the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, you see something very important is happening. Okay? Then we have the comparison with Elijah. Elijah has this altercation with the priests of Baal. Uh, you maybe heard that story before. It's an amazing story. Uh, but then he's fleeing for his life, and there's, uh, they're in the midst of a drought that he has just brought rain into, but he still can't find food. God feeds him with ravens. Ravens bring him food. And he calls him to this mountain, and he journeys for 40 days and 40 nights. We talked about this last week, and then or two weeks ago. And then he goes up to the mountain, and he's waiting to experience the presence of God. And it's a story where he doesn't hear God in the earthquake. He doesn't hear him in the thunder. He doesn't hear him in the fire. But then there's a still, small breeze, a still, small whisper. That's where he hears God's voice. And he shields his face because you cannot look upon God and live. That was what their belief was. And he has this interaction with God where God commissions him to go and do a couple very specific things. He says, I want you to go and anoint Hazael as king of Aram. I want you to anoint Jehu as son of Nemishi as king of Israel, and Elijah, son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, as prophet to succeed you. To go anoint three people who will be in leadership positions after Elijah leaves. You see the similarities here? Jesus is bringing three people who will be in leadership positions after he leaves. Okay, So these two figures very much foreshadowing what Jesus is bringing to fruition here uh, in this, in a sense, kind of an apparition of his transfiguration where he has actually changes forms in front of them. Um, Jesus also appears dazzling white. This happened to Moses. Uh, Moses' skin would shine white to the point where people would be so afraid of him, he would have to wear a veil. People couldn't look upon the fact that the glory of God had shined on him so prevalently that it changed his face that shone like diamonds. Uh, and this is happening to Jesus. Jesus is emanating this very same powerful presence of God to shine in that same way uh, to Peter, James, and John. Okay, so very, very clear, distinct similarity. So if you were reading this as a faithful Jew who knew the Jewish scriptures, you would be calling all of these old stories, very familiar stories, to mind. One other one, one other figure that you would think of is Daniel, the prophet Daniel. Daniel has a couple visions and prophecies. One very prominent one that Jesus references a lot, and that's in Daniel chapter 7, where uh, Daniel has this vision of the Ancient of Days, God, coming on his throne, and he says... Uh, one like a son of man, when he reached the ancient of days, okay, so not, not God the Father, not the Creator, but one like a son of man, when he reaches him, is presented before him, he receives dominion, splendor, and kingship. All nations, peoples, and tongues will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. His kingship is one that shall not be destroyed. And that is why Jesus, even though people refer to him as many things, a prophet, a rabbi, Elijah, um, son of God, Messiah, the thing he always calls himself almost all the time is the Son of Man. 
because it points back to this vision of Daniel of an apocalyptic figure coming with the power and dominion of God the Father, but not the same as God the Father, to come and have dominion over the earth. Later on in the the Gospel, in the prophet of Daniel, the book of Daniel, uh, he has another angelic vision where it says in verse 5, As I looked up, I saw a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite. His face shone like lightning. His eyes were like fiery torches. His arms and feet looked like burnished bronze. And the sound of his voice was like the roar of a multitude. So again, this shining figure that Daniel sees. And who, when Daniel is taken away into exile, accompanies him into exile? Three friends. Okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? So we have, again, all these figures having these visions or experiences of God or visions of God, of these shining ones or uh, promises about how one will come after them who is like them and surpasses them. And there's all of this kind of three imagery of the people that they will set up in leadership around them, the people who are with them, the people who are traveling up the mountain with them, all very clearly pointing toward this moment of the transfiguration. And so if you knew your scriptures well, all of that would be coming, I think, to the top of your mind. Um, I always like to remind, I talk about this every time when we talk about the transfiguration, and then we'll open it up for, for questions and comments. Um, why did Jesus have to get transfigured? Why? Seems like he's kind of just showing off, right? You know, like he's usually very humble. He keeps to himself. Don't tell anyone about me. And he's all of a sudden like, hey, come with me. And then you go up this mountain. He's like, oh, don't tell anybody. You know, Um, seems like you could very much interpret this as like a moment of vanity. Like Jesus is like, I just want you had to know that I have the superpower. You know, that's not what Jesus is doing. That's not what Jesus is doing. St. Thomas Aquinas, in part three of the Summa Logica, his masterwork on the summary of theology, he devotes an entire question to this. Why did Jesus have to be transfigured? And his answer is so that he could show the apostles a glimpse of the glory that is to come because he knows he's on his way to Jerusalem and it's not going to seem very glorious and very hopeful once they get there. They need, especially those in leadership among the apostles, they need this experience to be reminded of who Jesus is, to cling to the hope that he has the power to overcome what they're about to go and face. So it should instill in them a confidence in God, a confidence in who Jesus is, just like it should instill in us a confidence in who Jesus is. In moments of doubt and darkness and suffering, we can look to stories like the transfiguration to be reminded of the glory that is always to come when the power of God reigns in our life. Secondly, Thomas Aquinas says, this also prefigures for us, it gives us a window into what our resurrected bodies will be like. Okay, He says, our resurrected bodies, by virtue of what we know about Jesus and what we see in the scriptures, um, will have four qualities. They will have the qualities of impassibility, agility, subtlety, and clarity. Impassibility means they will no longer experience suffering. They will no longer experience suffering, aging, deterioration, death, anything like that. Okay, Impassibility. Agility. They will no longer be bound by, I don't know, let's say the laws of physics. You'll be able to do things like Jesus passes through the walls of the upper room and appears to them, right? Subtlety is similar to that. We're no longer um, affected by physical obstacles or matter in the same way. They cannot impede our movement or our ability in our glorified body. So same thing where Jesus can move through walls and things like that. And lastly, the one that is really prefigured here is clarity, that they will shine. Our resurrected bodies will shine. They will be unlimited, they will not suffer, they will not deteriorate, they will shine with the glory of God. 
And so the transfiguration reminds us of the hope that is to come for each one of us. But even here in our earthly life, it can be a signpost of hope in those moments where we are suffering, we are doubting, we're worried, we don't know what's happening, we don't know what's going on, as a way where we can be reminded that Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the glory that is to come. And if we walk with him, even though that glory can be shrouded in moments of intense suffering, in moments like the crucifixion, we can look back, like hopefully the apostles did to keep them going and keep them faithful. We can look back to moments like the transfiguration. And now for us, the resurrection, to be reminded that God has the power to overcome even the darkest of situations. So that's where I'll, I'll end with all of that. I'm sure there's more. But um, what are some questions, some things that stood out to you? What are you curious about? Yes. So... The Elijah appears, so that would be fulfilling the prophecy of Elijah coming. Yes, yeah. But then right after that, they start asking about Elijah, and then they say, um, Elijah, he says, Elijah will indeed come first and restore all things. If I tell you that Elijah has come, and they give him whatever he sees, mm -hmm. would he be referring to John the Baptist? Yes, yeah, he is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so the it's clear the apostles are trying to figure out what just happened. Right? They're trying to reconcile the fact that they've already heard Jesus talk about John the Baptist likely as Elijah. And even if he hadn't, John the Baptist looks exactly like Elijah. He wears the same outfit. He eats the same food. He does the same crazy stuff that Elijah did. He's basically wearing a signpost that says, I am Elijah, like everywhere he goes. Like he couldn't be more obvious. So they're trying to reconcile with like, okay, is that the Elijah that we're waiting for? Is John the Baptist the Elijah? You know, what's going on? And Jesus is essentially saying, yes. Like, yes, like John the Baptist came to prepare the way, but this vision that you've just experienced, this experience of the transfiguration, is a kind of another signpost to the fact that, like, yes, this is what you have been waiting for. The Messiah is here. I am him. It's not Moses. It's not Elijah. It's not a new Elijah or just a new Moses. It's much more than that. And when God speaks to the clouds and he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him, if you were confused at any moment, say, okay, who's the son? Is it Moses? Is it Elijah? It's Jesus. When they look up, who's gone? Moses and Elijah. Who's left? Jesus. Jesus is obviously the one that God is talking about. Okay, so if there was even any remote confusion about who the Messiah would be, they're given kind of an, an explanation in that, that absence then when they open their eyes and Moses and Elijah are not there. Um, so yes, but they're... Just as there are many ways in which Jesus is prefigured by these people in the Old Testament, uh, and not just one of them points to him, the same thing is true in the New Testament. These Elijah-type figures or moments or signposts to show that Jesus is the Messiah uh, do not need to be limited to only one, one way. Yeah. yeah, great question. Thank you. Other questions, thoughts, things that stand out? Yeah, Greg. You mentioned that for the purposes of the transfiguration, was the three people that Jesus chose to steal them for what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. When we look at what happened in the future with the crucifixion and beforehand and after, these guys were, I mean, Peter turned on them. Mm -hmm. He denied them three times. I don't know what happened to the other two, mm -hmm. but it doesn't look like they were steal very much for the future. Yeah, well, John was there. John stayed. John is the only apostle that remained at the foot of the cross. Yeah. Um, James, who there's no mention of. We assume he wasn't around. Uh, and there'd be no mention of Peter other than the fact that we have the story of him denying Jesus three times. So we have this very uh, intense uh, experience for Peter of turning away from Jesus. 
And yet, I mean, we don't, he doesn't attest to this. Actually, he does, Peter does actually give testimony to this in his letter in 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, he says, where is this? He's talking about what he saw. He says, for he received honor, and he's talking about Jesus. He received honor and glory from God the Father. When that unique declaration came to him from the majestic glory, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well, well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic message that is altogether reliable. You will do well to be attentive to it. So it's clear that at some point, Peter finally got it. That like, this was very significant. He's pointing back to it. It's spurring him to have hope for the future. But in that moment, you know, he despaired. He didn't have that hope that was promised to him. The question that we would have to ask is, what would Peter have done had even this not happened? You know, maybe Peter would have become another Judas. Maybe Peter never would have come back and restored his relationship with Jesus, where he's beside the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And restores him back to right relationship with him. Maybe that never would have happened if there wasn't that sliver of hope maybe in the back of his mind. Yeah, but he was on that mountain. and Maybe there's something more to this. You know, so it's hard to know. We don't know because we only know what Peter did having had this in his background um, and his recent experience. Um, but yeah, just because they had this experience, it doesn't mean that they will be perfect. You know, the interesting thing I mentioned this a couple weeks ago about the two uh, sons of Aaron who go up to Mount Sinai with Aaron and Moses, Nadab and Abihu, they end up getting struck down by God. You remember this? Because they offer unholy fire in the temple. They offer an unsolicited sacrifice or ceremony that was not prescribed by God. And they are struck down because of their unholiness. Uh, and in the Gospel of Luke, what's really interesting is we have the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, I believe. And at the end of that chapter, same exact chapter, at the end of that chapter, toward the end, uh, James and John come up to him and he says, when the disciples James and John saw what was happening, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Unholy fire, right? Fire that was not intended to destroy or to be used for their own purposes. So even them and their imperfection and their experience of this still aren't totally getting it. They're, they're almost showing that they could be doomed to re repeat the mistakes of the same people who journeyed to Sinai with Moses in the Old Testament. Um, and yet, they were destroyed. James and John at least understood enough, that being met with the mercy of Jesus, to be able to push them forward and for them to have the opportunity to repent, to come back, to return to Jesus, even though their despair had driven most of them away. So... We'll never know what could have happened or what would have happened had they not had this experience to edify them and kind of keep them maybe clinging on to some sliver of hope. Um, but we do know that that's why, at least in terms of Thomas Aquinas's, you know, theology, that's why Jesus did it. Yeah. That kind of what he says in that verse is like, don't reveal it to anybody, but until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Yeah. So. Yes, yeah. He wanted it to serve as future evidence for the fact that, you know, could Jesus have risen from the dead? And then Peter, James, and John would be like, well, we saw something actually. Uh, he definitely has the power to do crazy supernatural things. And they could then at that point talk about it. 
But if they had started spreading this all around, hey, we saw Moses, we saw Elijah, this person is clearly supernatural. Everything would have happened too quickly. People may not have even crucified Jesus to die for our sins. They may have just tried to make him into the Messiah that they wanted. So it's no wonder, too, why in the same chapter, or the chapter, I'm sorry, the same section, chapter right before this, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And right after this, it's as if Jesus is trying to, the, to answer the question, what kind of Messiah am I going to be? Who are you expecting the Messiah to be? Because if you're expecting Moses and you're expecting Elijah, they're here, I'm not them. I'm something more, I'm something different. So hold on to this moment. And once, once everything makes sense later, this will allow things to fall into place and fall into a line of understanding that you'll then be able to give eyewitness testimony for others to be able to understand. He doesn't do this so that all of a sudden it clicks for them. You know, he never does that. He never tells the disciples, all right, so you're going to follow me for three years. Here's our exact itinerary. Uh, by the way, I'm going to die and be crucified for your sins, but don't worry, I'll be right back. And they're like, okay, we totally get it. We're on board. It's going to suck, but we're here with you. Like that never happens. They never get like, they missed orientation day or whatever it was, you know, like that never happened. He only gives them enough to see the next step. And so that they continue have to, to have to operate on faith. Because if Jesus explained everything to them in layman's terms and just said, this is what's going to happen, and they were like, okay, we're on, that doesn't take faith. No faith is required to do that, other than just like, okay, I believe that you're trustworthy. But the difficulty they had to grapple with, the struggle, the doubt, was Jesus really the Messiah after he had died on the cross and was in the tomb those three days? Those are the things that take faith. And this moment, along with other moments of miraculous healings and supernatural experiences, were those probably glimmers, hopefully in the back of their minds, saying, no, there had to have been more to this. He wasn't like anybody else. He wasn't like any of those false messiahs. And so they stuck around. They stayed in Jerusalem. They could have all gone away like some of the other disciples did, the two walking on the road to Emmaus, who left almost immediately. They stayed, maybe because they had had these transfiguration experiences. And so if we can cling to these, who knows what we can weather and endure. Yeah? Do we know how much time passes between this and when Jesus actually resurrected? Um, not exactly. So this section is kind of like vague in terms of how long it takes. It seems as though they're making their way directly to Jerusalem. They kind of go down through Galilee, and then, depending on the gospel account, they come around to Perea on the other side of the Jordan River, where um, Bethany, Bethany is, where uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary live, and then they cross over. Um, so that journey on foot only takes, if you're going slow, like a week, not even that long. Um, so it just depends on how long they took in each place that they stopped. So, um, but it was clear that like this, this is where they're working toward now. Their ministry in Galilee is now done. They're making their way down to Judea and then into Jerusalem. And then once they get into Jerusalem, obviously it's a week. So this could have been just a few weeks before Jesus died, depending on how you take the timeline of Mark. Yeah. John. Uh, the, the so like just completely unrelated, it seems like they're about Abraham and Oh yes. And like and then about just for our sins and the Yes. Well they are related. And I forgot to mention this, so thank you for bringing that up. 
Um, another person that has something very supernatural happen to them on a mountain is Abraham. Uh, Abraham is called by God to sacrifice his son Isaac and to take him up this mountain called Mount Moriah to make a Holocaust offering. Um, Mount Moriah, you've probably not heard of because 2,000 years later, it is called Mount Zion. It is Jerusalem. So he's going to sacrifice his son. He is stopped by an angel and they are offered a ram in a bush of thorns. Okay, an adult lamb species crowned in thorns to replace that sacrifice of his son. Okay, very, very clear foreshadowing to the person of Jesus. Not as directly related to the, the transfiguration, but because it is this very supernatural encounter with God involving saving and foreshadowing about the Messiah that happens on a mountain, I think that's probably why it's the first reading for this. I agree that Moses going up to Sinai would probably be a much clearer uh, first reading. Um, and then, uh, this is an important thing about the lectionary, uh, the first reading, the psalm, and the gospel are always related. The second reading is not. Okay? The second reading is not. Before Vatican II, those were the only readings that existed in the Mass. You had a first reading, you had the psalm, and you had a gospel reading. They were all thematically related. When the Second Vatican Council happened, they issued a dogmatic constitution on the word called Dei Verbum that they wanted more people to be familiar with sacred scripture, and they wanted to insert more scripture if they could into the Mass. That's why we have the second reading, and we usually just travel through different books. So we'll stay in Romans for a while, and we'll stay in 1 Corinthians for a little bit. But they, they only uh, happenstancically, if that's a word, it's not, coincidentally uh, align with the themes of the readings um, some weeks and some weeks they don't. But it's not intended that they will. Um, so if you're ever wondering, like, what is going on here, take out the second reading and then read the other three in tandem, and you'll start to kind of see some of those themes pull out. Um, so you're right in the sense that second reading probably has nothing to do with it. Or you could maybe link some, some general themes. But um, that's where I think the, the relationship is between the first reading. The psalm, uh, I will walk before the, the Lord in the land of the living. Um, yeah. Don't know. When I started reading it, I thought it was a different psalm. So I had something else to say, and I, well, that wasn't it. So there's some relationship there. Uh, yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Yes. Is that supposed to, like, I mean, spiritually, like, is that his kind of uh, human nature? Mm. Like, you know, his transfiguration with him, like, revealing his divine nature or showing his divine nature. Yeah. Yeah. And like I always thought, like okay, so Moses had to wear this veil because it's reflecting you know, God's nature. So now, like you know, you even mentioned like Jesus willingly fought the devil with one hand tied behind his back. Mm -hmm. it's, it's divine nature. Yeah. So like I figured, okay, maybe there's a maybe the veil is actually his human nature in, in this. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think you can interpret it that way. What it reminds me of also is the temple and the tabernacle. That in the construction of the temple, or the tabernacle, and later the temple, the inner sanctum of the temple, you had an inner room where the priests had the uh, altar of incense, they had the menorah, they had the altar to the, to the showbread, and then there was a big veil, a curtain, that separated that part from the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it was believed that the presence of God actually dwelled in there. And in the Old Testament, in the first temple period, and in the tabernacle in the desert, that cloud on Sinai, it didn't stay in Sinai or leave. It followed them, and it hovered above the temple and the tabernacle, always. And so that presence of God was believed to dwell, like come down and touch in that Holy of Holies. And so the veil separated us from God because 
we are stained by sin and we are not worthy to come before God in his purity because he cannot be tainted. So if we come before God in his purity and, and, and he reveals that to us, it would be completely painful or overwhelming for our human nature to the point where there are many instances in the Old Testament people are just struck down dead. Not because they're being punished or because God is mean, but because literally his presence is too much for their sinful nature. And the presence of God has to eradicate and destroy sin no matter what. And if you have sin on you and you don't have Jesus as the mediator, you just have this veil, that's what happens. What Jesus does is he comes to die for our sins. So we no longer have separation. We no longer have to go through the sacrificial system and through the priests and the Levites to connect to God. That Jesus, scripture says, Jesus is our one mediator between God and man. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, what happens to the veil in the temple? It tears in two the moment he dies. Okay? And this veil was like, I, if I'm remembering this right, at least like 20 feet wide and 20 feet tall and about three to six inches thick. So for this to tear in half, it wasn't like made of paper, like it wouldn't have been an accident. And for this thing to come crashing to the floor would have been like a monstrous noise and experience for everyone in the temple and even surrounding it outside. You would have known something catastrophic inside had happened. It was massive. And so when I think of Jesus or Moses veiling himself, it's in that same sense, veiling the presence of God that has affected him so much in his pure state that he's kind of soaked in to protect the people from not being so terrified and overcome by the presence of God, because it says that's their reaction. But also because there does not yet exist this way in which God's divinity can come so close to our humanity without completely destroying us because of the nature of sin. That's how bad the separation is that original sin causes us, that our original woundedness causes us. That's why Jesus wanted to come, so that we can be reconciled to God. And now we don't need Moses, we don't need the temple, we don't need the tabernacle, we don't need the veil, we don't need that protection or that separation. We have Jesus as our mediator. And he can come to us in the flesh, not only face to face, but can literally dwell in us and make us into tabernacles. And we do not need to be veiled because the presence of God then is meant to shine out of us because we no longer have the stain of sin. It's incredible. The actual um, Greek word for unveiling is apocalypsos. So the word for revelation in Greek uh, is apocalypsos. So it's all about the unveiling of the wedding supper of the Lamb and what actually happens when God defeats death and Satan and how that remedies the separation that we have from God. And John, who writes Revelation, is given a vision of the heavenly host. This is the way in which you'll be connected with God. This is what the heavenly banquet will, banquet will look like and what the victory over sin, death, and evil will uh, be experienced like when you read the gospel, or when you read the, the letter or the vision of Revelation. So that unveiling, it's the same thing that happens at a wedding, you know, the unveiling. You are seeing the hidden mystery of the other person to the point where it's meant to change completely who you are. It's meant to purify the union between the bride and the groom. And that is an image for what God uh, wants to have with us, the relationship he wants to have with us. So, yeah, I think all of those things. But that's what it reminds me of, is the veil in the temple. Yeah. Yes? I know that Peter, James, and John were in like, the inner circle for a lot of things, like the mm -hmm. miracles and things like that. Yes. And Mm -hmm. But it just kind of struck me that the nine other apostles wouldn't have even like known about this if they listened to Jesus. Yeah. And then if the purpose of 
purpose of this was to instill hope, mm -hmm. wouldn't all the 12 apostles benefit from that hope? Like, I guess it just makes me sad. <laughs> <laughs> Why isn't everyone else included? Yeah. You're so kind. Um, yeah. Um, well, Thomas wouldn't have believed it. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, Jesus obviously had a purpose. Um, we know that he did this for uh, when he raises Jairus' daughter, he brings the three of them with him. When he's suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, he brings the three of them with him. And then the three of him plus Andrew are with him on the Mount of Olives, questioning him about the end of time in one of the Gospels as well. So there is this kind of like innermost uh, circle of those connected to Jesus. Um, Jesus is very uh, intentional about setting up a hierarchical church that's very clearly with Peter at the head, that he wants to set up a church. That church is very clearly believed and, and um, clearly understood by Jesus uh, that the apostles need to set up this church that is hierarchical with bishops and priests and deacons because that's exactly what they do. So it's not surprising that there'd be kind of an inner hierarchy among the apostles. And even when they are listed in any of the Gospels, the numbering might be different. You know, the way they're, they're listed might be different. Peter is always first. Then James and John and Andrew. And then there's like another three that are always together, another three that are always together. Um, and then, how many is that? Math, 10, um, or maybe four in the middle, but they're always grouped. And the, those only that inner group kind of changes the way they're list, listed. And then Judas is always last, obviously. Um, so there's a clear, there was a clear kind of hierarchy in the way that they even talked about the apostles and how the gospel writers listed them. They understood that these three had kind of a prominent place. And then based on what they did or what they were believed to have done, um, after they died, or after Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Peter obviously was the, the, the first pope. He founded the church. You know, he's the, the leader of the church. Uh, Jesus founded the church, but Peter was the leader. Um, John was the only one to die of old age and was entrusted with the care of Jesus' mother. Um, so he had a very special role. And then James, depending on who you believe this James to be, um, either led the early church in Jerusalem or was a missionary who brought the word all the way to Spain, came back, and was the first to be martyred. He's actually the only apostle we have his death recorded in Acts of the Apostles. So he's the first one to be killed. Um, so prominent missionary roles, prominent positions of leadership in prominent areas, prominent care of people that were very close to Jesus, like his mother, uh, and that they were the early leadership of the church. Doesn't mean the apostles didn't have prominent roles. They all spread and had their missionary work and they were, the, they were the first bishops. But it was clear he wanted to set these three apart for a purpose. Some of it I think was symbolic because of Nadab and Abihu being brothers in the Old Testament with, with Elijah. Um, and some of it I think was very intentional. You know? And part of it could also have been that he may have been um, related to James and John. There's a very strong likelihood that they were like second or third cousins. Um, based on how, if you follow the, all the relationships between all the Marys and who they're married to uh, in the New Testament, there is a way to reconcile that where Jesus can be related to up to, I think, five of the apostles as cousins, um, depending on how you read it. So, yeah. But otherwise, I don't know. Greg. When we talk about, it's interesting, we talk about the temple and the power of the temple and God residing inside between this thick curtain Mm -hmm. And the fact that the presence of God was in the temple, and when he was there, obviously there was a cloud above. Mm -hmm. But the Jews were conquered people. 
Mm-hmm. And you think the Romans are around? Is there any? Is there anything written about the Romans? I mean, usually when you're conquered people, if you have something special, whoever conquers you, they want to mm-hmm. control. Yes. So, I mean, if they see a cloud up above in perpetuity, and they, and the conquered people say, "Well, our holy of holies is in here, mm-hmm. God's presence." I mean. You think maybe they want to get in there? So at that time, the cloud was no longer there. So what happens in the Old Testament is that when they build the temple, and you have the reign of King Saul and King David and King Solomon, the presence of God is there. But the people start to get corrupted, and God sends these prophets to tell them, if you you keep doing this, you're going to be destroyed. The Assyrians are going to come and destroy you. Babylon is going to come and destroy you. Um, And then Ezekiel, or no, not Ezekiel. uh, Well, Ezekiel has a vision of the presence of God leaving the temple, but it is just a vision. But um, right before the time of exile, um, before Babylon comes in, we read, I think, in 2 Maccabees that Jeremiah takes the ark of God from the temple, which is what the presence of God was really connected to. It wasn't the temple itself. It was the ark of the covenant in the temple. And he takes it out of the temple because he knows they're about to be invaded and the temple's probably going to be destroyed, and he seals it up in a cave, never to be found or referenced again in scripture, at least, at least uh, not, it's referenced later, but in visions or symbolically, but never to be tangibly seen or talked about again in scripture. Um, before that, there is an instance where um, they're fighting, I believe, the Philistines, um, the, the Jewish people, and uh, some king makes a really bad decision to go get the Ark of the Covenant, and to bring it into battle to allow the presence of God to terrify the enemies. And because that's such an unholy act to take something consecrated and sacred and bring it into this very violent act that you've brought into, God allows the Ark of the Covenant to be taken by the Philistines. And everyone is in like total, they're totally out of sorts because of this. So they put the Ark of the Covenant in the Philistine temple to a god named Dagon, one of their gods. They walk in every day and the statue of Dagon is fallen over. And it keeps getting knocked over. And then all of a sudden, everyone in the temple, the priests and everyone in the city, start growing these terrible tumors. Uh, and all these terrible things start happening because the presence of God is there, and they are not sanctified. They are not holy. And so it starts affecting them in these very terrible ways. So they eventually just take the Ark of the Covenant back to, like, farmland. And they're just like, can you guys please take this back? <laughs> and so they march the Ark of the Covenant back to where it needs to be. But they don't do it the right way. They don't have the actual poles that they're supposed to have. They build a makeshift cart, and it teeters. And there's a story where Uzziah steadies the the Ark of the Covenant with his hand. And because he, not being pure and undefiled, touches it, he falls down dead immediately. So the power of the presence of God is very palpable and clear wherever the Ark of the Covenant is in the Old Testament. And because they knew that the temple would probably be destroyed, it was sealed up. And once they rebuilt the temple, later on, they did not have the Ark of the Covenant in it, and the presence of God never came back. And so they would, there's like mourning in, I think it's in uh, the book of Nehemiah, uh, or Ezra, originally the same scroll, um, where the people are mourning because the temple does not equal the glory of the former one, and the presence of God is not there. And so now we have that same cloud, presence of God, showing up at Jesus' baptism, speaking, now at the transfiguration speaking, it would have been very clear and very exciting for the Jewish people to see this manifest power of God that they'd heard talked about and they'd heard seen written about in their sacred writings, returning all, not coalescing over an Ark of the Covenant, but over a person, Jesus. And like, and, and, and we 
hinted on it, but in mm -hmm. Revelation 11, at the, yes. end, at the end of the chapter, mm -hmm. he mentions the ark. Yes. Right? And then in 12, it's a woman clothed in the sun. Yeah. Of course, the ark of Mary. And then it does manifest with the child. Yes, yeah. So it, it does. Yeah. So precisely, like you said, just, I wouldn't even say it's a vision. That's just the liturgical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why one of Mary's titles is she's the new Ark of the Covenant. Because in the Ark of the Covenant was the law, it was the bread from uh, the desert, the manna, and the, the rod of Aaron, the high priest. And so Jesus, he comes in the womb of his mother, Mary. She is the new Ark of the Covenant. He is the new law, the word made flesh. He is the bread of life, the new manna, and he is the new high priest. And so he embodies all of the things that were in the original ark, which is one of the reasons why people speculate the ark has never been found and may never will be found because Jeremiah sealed it up into a cave and Jesus was born into a stable cave into the new ark of the covenant of his mother Mary. And so there's a lot of mystical similarities there and you see that in Revelation 11 and 12 in the transition between those two chapters. So, yeah, yes. Wasn't it one of the Indiana Jones? Yes. Yeah, first one. Yeah. So that's right. I should say it's sealed up in a mountain or it's in a warehouse somewhere, you know. Yes. Yeah. So we're over time, but um, if you have more questions, please come up and ask. But there's so much here in this passage. I really encourage you to read over this, but I really want to return back to that, that, that passage from Aquinas uh, to be reminded of the glory that is to come. Um, it's Lent. Lent often bears a lot of struggle, difficulty. Things come up in people's lives during the season of Lent just because it's Lent and the devil just hates that we're trying to fast and pray and give alms and be better. Uh, he wants to steal the joy of Easter before Easter comes from each of our lives. And so we need moments like this. We need, this is why every second Sunday of Lent every year we read the Transfiguration, to be reminded of the glory that is to come in each of our lives, the end of our life in heaven, in each of our lives when we encounter the Lord and in the anticipation of this coming Easter season. So whatever you're going through right now, come back to this. Come back to this passage and be reminded of the glory that is to come, that Jesus has power over sin, over death, over life. Um, he is showing us a glimmer of what is possible uh, when we, we live our lives with him in the driver's seat. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of this study, for the gift of this passage and, and your word. We pray, Lord, that um, all these things that we've talked about tonight, that you would just, whatever resonated with us would really just be written on our hearts this week, that it would, it would burn in us a desire to return to this passage and to encounter all of the ways that you are seeking to shed supernatural light and to transform the things in our life, especially those things that are shrouded in darkness those areas of our life where your presence is veiled, where we cannot see or we feel distant from you, so that your glory will be made known. Bless us each in the ways we most need it. And bless us as we journey through this Lenten season together in prayer and fasting and in almsgiving so that we can bask in the joy of the Easter season. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.